According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. We're going to be in Matthew, Mark, and Luke once again today. Uh, Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20 will be our three uh, primary passages. The stories are, are largely identical. Um, can we drop the volume down just a touch? Thank you. The uh, accounts are virtually identical. The account in Luke is the longest, and so it has more that's uh, unique to that chapter. But we'll start with Matthew. How about that? Matthew 22. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit, humble under the authority of teaching. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for this opportunity today to assemble together, that this day itself is a gift, it's a grace gift that uh, that we woke up this morning, and, and here we are, Father, you provided the schedule, the transportation, the finances, the opportunity to be here, and so I, uh, I ask that you would reward the volition of those uh, believers here this morning that, that want to study to show themselves approved. Father, open our eyes to truth, we thank you in Christ's name, amen. Alrighty, this is actually one of my more favorite stories in the whole Bible. Um, I, I chuckle each time I read through it because um, it's so ludicrous, you know, in the sense of, well, what if, you know. And, you know, this, this woman, she marries and then she's widowed and she marries and she's widowed and she runs through seven of these brothers that that uh, all keep dropping dead. And I, I get, I'd get suspicious after the first, you know, two probably. If by, by husband number three, I wouldn't... I wouldn't marry this girl, but anyway, that's part of the ludicrous uh, hypothetical. And you know, the thing is, though, we deal with this all the time. You know, I, I find anyway when I'm discussing things with atheists or, or you know other skeptics or God haters and things, they'll they'll put forth these most outlandish hypotheticals, right? And it is it's not Big Bang itself, not just this extraordinary outlandish hypothetical of what if this and what if that kind of a thing. So it really uh, is the, the world in which we live. So uh, let's take a look at it. But we're right here in Matthew 22 in the midst of a large... Uh, thank you. <laughs> the lights are going out. There we go. Um, we're in the midst of several episodes that have come here in the process of, of Matthew 22. So uh, we just finished the... Um, one realm of conflict, and each time it's almost like the Lord is getting more pointed in the uh, in the opposition. He's he's throwing questions back at them, and he's saying, "Well, I'm not going to answer you until you answer my question first. And he's leaving in in a lot of cases he's leaving them without any uh, answers uh, because they're not going to answer his questions. So uh, different things there we've seen. So, starting with verse 23 now, On that day some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. And that's actually true. That's called the Leveret Marriage uh, Stipulations of Mosaic Law, and we're going to see the uh, passage in Deuteronomy that, uh, that stipulates that. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother, and also the second and third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. And this, uh, they feel, is the unanswerable question. They probably, uh, from all we can gather, Arnold Fruchtenbaum believes that this was probably a standard question or a, a uh, philosophical line of logic that they would use in their argumentation against the Pharisees. Because uh, the Pharisees, of course, taught the resurrection, believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. And so in their debates between them, uh, this would be a line of argumentation that maybe uh, they had used repeatedly in, uh, in different arguments. And now um, Jesus is going to actually give them an answer that... Uh, that uh, they're not going to like. So we see that starting here in verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. <laughs> right? You are mistaken. I'll never forget 
years ago, uh, I heard uh, John Walbert at a, at a pre-trib conference, and he he was 95 years old at the time, and and uh, he uh, they had to help him walk across the stage and sit on a stool up there, and and uh, or he's with the Lord now, but he uh, he was taking some questions, and and someone was trying to ask him about you know the rapture in Matthew 24, which is not a rapture passage, and and uh, he just looked at him and said, "Young man, you're wrong," <laughs> and and it was just. That direct and plain and simple. It wasn't. Uh, I, don't, you know, I, I didn't take it rudely or anything. It was just a plain, direct statement. You're wrong, and this is what the Savior is doing here. You are mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures, or nor the power of God. They have two realms of ignorance, and we're going to see uh, each of these items here uh, that, uh, uh, in the context of the Old Testament, would be. Uh, areas that they need to remedy. They need to have a better understanding of Scripture, first of all, which the Pharisees were great on the Scripture, uh, but also the power of God. And both groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, were very um, deficient in their recognition of who God is and how God works. Um, so verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither married nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. All right, so that's the account there in Matthew. And that actually is shorter than the Luke account, but it gives us the essence of the, uh, of the, of the episode. They throw this conundrum at him, and he tells them they don't know what they're talking about. And he uses angels as the illustration uh, for what the resurrection is going to be like. And then he cites uh, Exodus. To uh, to prove his case, and actually, the citation from Exodus is awesome because it's it's a commentary on Exodus that no other commentary ever thought of of, uh, of using. And uh, we're going to view this because it's a it's a actually it's an element of our hermeneutic that uh, forms the tradition of, of church that we that we practice that we follow. Why do we use the literal hermeneutic we use, and why do we uh, insist on verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, and why uh, why don't we use um, you know the, the hermeneutics that other uh, Christian traditions use, like Pentecostal, Roman Catholic, or Orthodox, and so forth. Um, at their core, because of their flawed hermeneutic, they end up with their flawed results. You understand? We've taught this several times. But if I used their flawed hermeneutic, I'd go straight to the same place they're going, right? And so in a lot of cases, uh, it's not really a doctrinal difference. It's simply a hermeneutic difference. And the way that we interpret and the way that we handle the scriptures. And so if I was going to be, uh, you know, if I was going to be sloppy, <laughs> you know, of course, ours is the best. Why is ours the best? Because it's the one we use? No. It's the one Jesus used. Okay. And so we want to understand, this is why God was so brilliant in giving us an Old Testament first, and then giving us a New Testament. And giving us a New Testament that used so much of the Old Testament in their citations and quotations and, and, uh, and interpretations. Okay. And so God in His Word gave us the hermeneutic that we should use. It's the hermeneutic that Christ used. And that's what we're, gonna, we're going to see in the process of this study. All right, let's. Uh, Mark is almost a clone of, of Matthew at this point, but there is one unique thing to Mark. So let's look at that, and then quickly, and then we'll look at the Luke account, which is the the longest one. So uh, we leave Matthew twenty-two and go to Mark twelve. Starting with verse eighteen. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died leaving no children. And the second one married her and died leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. It's a little bit more drawn out than the Matthew account. So all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, uh, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And so Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures nor the power of God? So Matthew records it as a statement. Mark records it as a question. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Again, like angels. 
not they don't turn into angels. That's the false understanding. But they are like angels, and here's how they're like angels. Uh, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. All right, then the fullest account comes in Luke 20. Starting with verse 27. Then there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, uh, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and tied childless, and the second... Hope you're catching the drift of the story by now. And the second and the third married her, and in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be for all seven and married her? And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age, this is where we get a little bit more developed in the, in the information. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore, because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. Alright, so there's all three accounts. And we'll stick primarily, I suppose, here with the Luke account, since it's the longest as we start to get the details now of what we're dealing with. First of all, first thing we want to understand, point one, the Sadducees presented their fantasy hypothetical as proof there could be no resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees presented their fantasy hypothetical as proof there could be no resurrection from the dead. To them, this, this was the, the only thing that needed to be said. There was no answer to this question, so since there was no answer to this question, they felt that uh, that the the resurrection itself was was ludicrous that it was it was unthinkable to uh, to consider and uh, so forth and as I said this is a similar line of argumentation we have today uh, other folks uh, for example I was listening to a debate um, day before you, on Monday I was listening to a debate with uh, the idea that evil itself the concept of evil disproves the existence of God that the fact that there is evil in the world means logically there cannot be a God. And they, they present then a, a, a kind of a two lines of argument that, uh, well, you know, if he was all powerful, then he could, he could, uh, he could thwart all the evil and keep evil from happening. Or if he was all loving, that, uh, that he wouldn't want the evil to take place. And so they basically conclude that, he, that there is no all powerful God and there is no all loving God. And so based on that, there is no God kind of a thing. So anyway, it was, uh, Kind of a sad debate on their perspective. The man on the other side, though, was very, very good, powerful with the scriptures, and laid it on out there. And he said, "No, it's just the opposite. You know, it's uh, the existence of evil demonstrates that there is an all-powerful God and there is a loving God, and was really a uh, tremendous thing to listen to." Well, that's uh, that's a different debate. This one here, though, there is no resurrection because uh, you you would end up with. Uh, uh, you know, some kind of a, a crazy thing in heaven with a woman with seven husbands kind of a thing. And that's just ridiculous. You know, a man could have multiple wives. We're cool with that. But a woman with multiple husbands? Oh, my. That's, that, that would never work. See? <laughs> so, uh, smile with me now. We're going to relax today. Uh, you know, it is interesting that, that polygamy is always, at least, well, that's not true. There were some Celtic polyandrous, but not many. A polygamy, more often than not, you know, 90% of the cases of polygamy or more, it's always one guy with lots of women. And that's, uh, that's always been the, the nature of human polygamy. Uh, so, anyway, they, they view this as being, well, uh, this makes no sense. She's going to have multiple husbands by the time she gets to heaven. So there must not be a resurrection. 
and, uh, and so forth. This is their fantasy hypothetical. So the Lord's going to reply. Now, first of all, what is this about, this leveret marriage? The Mosaic Law procedure for leveret marriage. And leveret, by the way, is not found in the Bible. The word leveret uh, comes from the Latin. Uh, the levir is uh, an uncle. So, uh, or a, a male kinsman there. So, that's why it's called leveret marriage. It's just a theological term that's come to us thanks to our Latin heritage. But, the Mosaic Law procedure for leveret marriage was proof in their minds that no resurrection was possible. So let's go to Deuteronomy 25 and let's take a look at it. Deuteronomy 25. Let's see what the stipulations are here. And this is the undeniable reality that, um, that at least with respect to this circumstance, uh, God actually instructs, what if this brother's already married? You know, he has to raise up a, a, a son for his brother, then this is going to stipulate, you know, mandated polygamy. It's going to, it's going to be the circumstance. And, uh, and, you know, that caused a bit of a stir in some minds when we taught Life of David, and the thought of polygamy being in the will of God was uh, not, uh, but difficult in some, some respects. All right. Now keep in mind the biggest item with respect to the, why, why why does he have to have a son? Okay, say so, I mean is it the end of the world that he doesn't have a son? I mean aren't there childless couples all over the world and, and you know if if uh, if he if he dies childless then you know okay it's sad but at least you know the widow now you know uh, is free to remarry and and um, um, isn't it better to be a childless widow than to be a widow with young children and trying to trying to, to feed them and raise them and take care of them? Are people who would say so? All right. Um, well, that what's, you can answer it yourself if you've had teaching on the Old Testament. What uh, the big deal is 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 not having a son means is that inheritance is not going to be passed down, and and the land grants and all of the stipulations of the of the uh, Mosaic Covenant were were targeted by tribe, by clan, by family, and so uh, the idea that uh, uh, it's more than just simply the human sadness of a of a family where the name isn't carried on. It's actually in the divine plan that that name is carried on because that name is attached to a certain segment of the inheritance of Israel. See? So, I mean, if there were if there were no more Bolanders in the next generation, it wouldn't, who cares, right? It's not the end of the world. It's not going to affect, uh, you know, the, the grand scheme of things. But that's because we're not in, a, in the theocracy of Israel where the land-grant inheritance is associated with every tra uh, tribe, clan, and family. You understand? So, this is uh, the significance of it here. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, this is Deuteronomy 25.5, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Okay? And the recognition is that, uh, that she's young enough to, to have children and, and uh, so forth. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It's referred to as a duty. And it should be that the firstborn whom she bears, and that's key, is not brought up in any of the if any of the Sadducees, uh, you know, arguments. Uh, it's, it's totally omitted in the gospel record when they're asking the Lord about this. The firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother. Now, what about the secondborn? What about additional children that may come? Okay, they're not. Recorded in this verse, but it's understood that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And uh, presumably, then, as the wife of the second brother now, additional children that are born would uh, would uh, take his name and be a part of that branch of the family. Presumably, all right. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife. What's his, uh, is this mandatory? What's his opt-out clause here? Um, you know, uh, <laughs> what if, uh, well, it's interesting. We, uh, I mean, what if he doesn't like her, you know? As far as that goes. This is awkward because my brother's wife actually attends this church, so if I, <laughs> I can't say anything really as far as this goes. 
But, you know, you would think that... Uh, I'll just let that go. I mean, if he doesn't like it, does he have a choice? Can he say no? Not, not to be obedient to the will of God. That's right, not to be obedient to the circumstance here. In fact, it's a tremendous shame. If he does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate of the, up to the gate to the elders and say, remember the, the elders there of the city, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her. Uh, so there's steps that take place here. First of all, one-on-one with her to him and then with the elders and then the whole city here. But he's given a chance to repent at each step. This is similar to the Matthew 18 procedure of, of rebuke and corporate discipline. Uh, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, and he actually gets a new name here, she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. So even his own name now will come into shame. So because he's not willing to preserve the name of his brother, all right, to carry on the the uh, the lineage there, then his own name will now come into disrepute. And so he will now have this new name as opposed to the, the name that he was desirous to propagate. You understand how this works? Okay? This may be hard for us because we're not tribal. Our nation is not... We're not organized in terms of tribes and clans and, and families and so forth. And as I said, if there's, if there's no Bolanders in the next generation, who cares? You know, it's not... It's not uh, the end of the world. Um, but the idea that your name is going to be perpetuated, your, your particular branch of your clan, of your tribe, is going to be perpetuated. And to have that besmirched, to have that um, renamed, so you're no longer... Uh, think of David now, of the, of the son of Jesse. Okay, that's his house, in the house of Jesse. Of the clan of Ephrathah, okay, of the tribe of Judah. And, and they were actually a very small, very uh, uh, obscure clan of the tribe of Judah. And yet, um, how significant that is. And, and to have that removed, say, uh, all right, David, you're no longer of the house of Jesse. You're now the uh, house of him whose sandal is removed. <laughs> okay? You are David, son of house of him whose sandal is removed. How... Uh, it's it's uh, devastating in terms of in terms of that because their whole culture was associated with their tribes, their clans, their families. That's how their businesses were organized. That's how their marriages were arranged. That's how all of their dealings, uh, their their military engagements for mutual self-defense and everything was was connected to their tribe, their clan, their family. As far as that goes, all right. So this is the uh, Mosaic Law procedure. And they thought, hey, this is proof there can't be a resurrection because, you know, this woman's going to have two husbands or three husbands or however many, seven, okay? Um, then clearly, then if there's a resurrection, then she's going to be in a hard spot, you know? She's going to have seven husbands. That was unthinkable, you know? You can't, no, you, can't serve, <coughs> you can't serve two masters, let alone seven, kind of, kind of a thing. Now, <coughs> the book of Genesis, point B. The book of Genesis has a terrible example for how this mechanism could be abused. The book of Genesis has a terrible example for how this mechanism could be abused. And this is a story that's told in Genesis 38, verses 6 through 11, which uh, we taught in the Life of Jacob series. That was the series where polygamy came in. It wasn't Life of David, yeah. Life of David, we taught polygamy a second time around, but originally the, the polygamy doctrine came up in Life of Jacob when he had married the two sisters and, and the two handmaidens and had four different uh, children with four different women. All right. Genesis 38. Now keep in mind, this episode precedes the giving of the law. Okay, this is very early. This is in the patriarchal era. The law has not been given yet. There's no mandated uh, Deuteronomy 25. There's no uh, Mosaic code that, that stipulates this. But it was a practice not only among the Hebrews but many in the ancient Near East. This was a custom in the in the Semitic world. So um, I think I even included. No, I didn't. 
um, some records from the Nuzi tablets and from the uh, from other documentation with respect to the Hittites and the uh, Assyrians that uh, that uh, stipulated different procedures in this realm as well. All right, this deals with Judah and Tamar and uh, the story here. Judah um, sees a Canaanite woman and. Uh, Let's just take a look at this. Verse 38, uh, chapter 38. came about at the time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son. He named him Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shalah. And it was a Chizib that she bore him. All right, now this, is, this introduces the story. And it's interesting that he's separating himself from his brothers, the covenant people of, of the sons of Jacob, and he's identifying with the Canaanites, who we're told are godless and wicked. And uh, it's not clear that he actually marries this girl, but he, he uh, takes this guy's daughter, I guess took her and went into her, could stipulate a marriage relationship, but that's not clear. And uh, and three children in uh, in this. So, uh, now, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord took his life. Now, this is what sets it up. Uh, here's a son with a wife, and he dies without a child. So, Judah says to Onan, that's the second son, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. So, this is a concept that... that Ur's name needs to be perpetuated. And so Judah expects that Onan is going to, uh, going to uh, fulfill that responsibility. Now Onan knew that his offspring would not be his, the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. And this is the, the wickedness of what this brother is doing. And so he goes through to theoretically to obey his father, takes her into his house or his tent and whatever. But instead of being of uh, fulfilling his responsibilities and actually producing a child and raising that child and paying for that child, uh, he just simply has all of the the selfishness of, of promiscuity that says, hey, let's just, um, I'll just have sex with this girl and, and make sure we don't have babies and, uh, and so forth. And God says, all right, that's wicked. And uh, so he dies the sin and the death here as well. All right. So Judah then says to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shalah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brother, so uh, Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, that's not unreasonable if, in fact, Shalah is too young, but it becomes obvious that um, that was simply just an excuse and that Shalah is probably old enough already and uh, Judah is just uh, delaying. All right. And then the rest of the story, um, it gets uglier from here. All right. <laughs> is this not already ugly? Um, she... Uh, takes matters in her own hands, disguises herself as a prostitute, and uh, actually lures uh, Judah himself and her father-in-law and uh, gets pregnant with him. So there's uh, the story there. That's the book of Genesis. Terrible example for how this mechanism could be abused. All right, And the idea that, uh, that uh, Onan was abusing her just simply for his own gratification and not the responsibility of raising the son is uh, the wickedness of that. Okay, and uh, there's a lot of other commentary on that, and it, people have built a full-scale, uh, not really a doctrine, but they, they've, they've gleaned a lot of things out of that uh, respecting, uh, you know, having to do with birth control or other other sexual things and. Stretching that passage far beyond anything that passage is dealing with. That passage is dealing with Onan's responsibility to raise a child and his selfishness in uh, in not doing so. All right. There's a good example though, and that's the Book of Ruth. <laughs> All right. So well, we have a positive example. And the Book of Ruth has a beautiful example of how this works, and this is uh, Ruth chapter four. Let's turn over there. And interestingly enough, both 
stories are in the line of Christ, which I find interesting. The, um, when you look at the genealogies in Matthew as for the birth of Christ, uh, Judah through Tamar, playing the harlot, is the line of Christ. And uh, Ruth, with Boaz here, is in the line of Christ. So, Joshua judges Ruth, right? This new Bible is missing a book. There we go. All right. A little brain cramp this morning. How's that happen? <laughs> Started aiming for Esther. All right, Ruth. All right. In the story, uh, Ruth is widowed in chapter one, and um, and her sister, and uh, and her mother-in-law, three widows, and uh, they uh, go. They're living in the land of Moab, and then uh, they return here to the land of Israel. And uh, Naomi is the mother-in-law who kind of. Uh, Organizes things so that Ruth will go and work in the fields of uh, of a kinsman, a near kinsman named Boaz. But it's interesting why that field was selected when there was a nearer kinsman, and uh, I, I I do a lot of speculating and wondering about why um, Naomi avoided that guy uh, in order to try to organize things with Boaz. And I mean, it worked out in the end, but. God, it was faithful, of course, but it just seems to be manipulation on Naomi's part when there was actually a nearer kinsman, and and Boaz is not going to uh, not going to do anything improperly here with the with the process. So, um, without reading the first three chapters, as far as this goes, um, Boaz and the and the marriage proposal and the things here happens in chapter three. Um, Hopefully you're familiar with this, and I'm not cheating you today. But the um, chapter three, verse eight, in the middle of the night, the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a young woman was lying at his feet. Yeah, that would surprise me too. <laughs> and uh, he said, "Who are you?" And she answered, "I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative." Um, this also is a concept that. This is this is an actual marriage proposal here, and this this uh, there's there's some sensitivities that some folks are uncomfortable with here tonight, but or in as they read through this chapter, but that's that's also a matter of culture. Uh, he could marry her right here, right now, and this is what is uh, is in view. But he says, "May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first." by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask for all my people in uh, the city. Know that you are a woman of excellence. It's true I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. And this shows the tremendous character of Boaz's part because of, of the circumstances of her and where she is and what this is. And he says, no, um, we need to do this legally. We need to do this properly. We need to do this in a manner that does not besmirch uh, anything. So he says, Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So he lay, she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. This is important. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's actually taking steps to preserve her reputation, to preserve her, uh, uh, and his reputation for that matter, but to, uh, to protect her in this, see. And uh, I think the, the more puritanical um, crowd that is not comfortable with her sexual offer here uh, is, has a hard time explaining verse uh, 14 when they, they redefine things in, uh, in the earlier verses. But he's being very cautious to preserve her reputation in this. And uh, so then the next day, in chapter 4, Boaz went up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. 
took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Again, it's the elders of the city. They're going to form the, the court. They're going to form the, the, uh, the decision-making body with respect to the, the uh, man that's going to refuse to, uh, to redeem Ruth. Then he said to the closest relative, uh, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother, Elimelech. See, again, it's not just a, a boy that doesn't have a baby. There's a, a plot of land that belongs to that line of the family. It belongs to that particular branch of, uh, of, of the clan of this tribe. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. So in the line of succession, in the line of nearness, uh, this and his name isn't given here, which I appreciate. It's it's kind of um, God in a in a very gracious way doesn't tell us this this guy's. I call him knucklehead because he had a a chance to marry Ruth and in in past, but his name isn't given. And uh, I am after you. And he said, "Oh, I'll redeem it." He's all excited for the land, okay, to add to his own wealth or whatever else. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And so this is the uh uh-oh moment. Because the guy just said he wanted the land, right? He just said he would redeem the land. And then the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. And this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redemption and exchange of land. To confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Now this is, it. This is volunteer on his part. And because Boaz is on hand to, to do it, um, he's not going to be spit in the face. His name isn't going to be brought into shame and so forth. It's, it's agreed to by the parties here involved. And so... Uh, Boaz says to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses today. I have bought from the hand of Naomi and belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Elimelech, and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabites, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So this is the, this is a positive example. This is the, this is having it done right. In fact, had it not been done right, uh, had it been done according to Naomi's scheme, then, um, they would have been married there that night and in the morning then this closer relative would have had a huge Argument. He would have. Uh, he would have been defrauded. He would have been. Uh, he would have claimed that Boaz actually stole uh, Ruth and the land, and uh, and and so forth. And he then could have actually sued to to uh, <laughs> to, to get the land himself and and not accept the uh, the adulterous uh, Ruth in that circumstance. So um, Boaz. And there's a lot of dynamics in that night, and in the wisdom of Boaz to to uh, not fall into that trap is, uh, is an important consideration there in that chapter. All right. So there it is. Now, this is the circumstance, and Jesus rejects it. Jesus rejects even the premise of the question. Jesus rejects the premise of the question. And, and that there's, a, there's a fundamental assumption that forms the premise of the question. And uh, he says, you're mistaken. And I think we need to do more of that. <laughs> okay? The, the premise is, they're making an assumption, right? The assumption is, is that whoever you're married to on earth is who you're going to be married to in heaven. And that's, a, that's an assumption. And that's not true. And he's going to spell out why it's not true. In the resurrection, we, we aren't married. Marriage is until death us do part. And he even says in Luke, that's why, it's one of the reasons why there is no marriage in heaven is because there's no more death in heaven. And marriage is an institution that's designed to last until death. And since there's no death in heaven, an institution designed to last until death can, cannot exist. Okay? And Jesus specifically used that as part of his logic in, in the Luke record uh, that we read just a little bit ago. Um, the only marriage that's designed to be an eternal relationship is the bride's marriage to Christ. We are the eternal bride of Christ. And that's the only marriage that's designed to be eternal. 
Our earthly marriages are designed to be temporal. They're designed to be a foreshadowing of the eternal. Okay? So the idea that we would have uh, a human marriage eternally is nonsensical because it's supposed to be a foreshadowing. It's like the idea of having a, an eternal tabernacle. No, it was, it was a foreshadowing of the reality of Christ's sacrifice to come. Okay? So Jesus rejects the premise of the question. I think we need to do more of that. I think when we're encountering skeptics and God-haters and other people and they throw this thing out there, um, it, it serves us well to go ahead and just stop the debate right from the beginning and say there is no debate because your premise, your assumption that you use to start this debate is factually incorrect. So there's nothing to debate, there's nothing to discuss. Get your facts right and then we'll, <laughs> we'll fellowship over Scripture. How about that? Okay. So, let me get back now to Matthew. 22:29 or Mark 12. Let's look at Matthew 22:29. You are mistaken. Understanding neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, why do they not understand the scriptures? The um, failure to understand the scriptures. Sub point A. Here's why. Fixation upon Pentateuch supremacy. The Sadducees locked in on the Pentateuch. They didn't deny that the prophets or the Psalms were biblical. They didn't go that far. Samaritans did. Samaritans viewed them as not even canonical, not even legitimate. Um, and so the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch and only accepted their own version of the Pentateuch. Uh, the Sadducees didn't quite go that far. They... For the most part, they acknowledged that uh, the, the Psalms was legitimate and that and that uh, the prophets was was scripture, but they they zeroed in on the law itself, on the Torah, on the the Pentateuch, as being the core. So that if they couldn't build a doctrine from the Pentateuch, it wasn't a doctrine. Okay, that was their approach, and it's a bad approach because God has given all scripture. All scripture is God breathed and profitable. And the, the portions outside of the Pentateuch need to be coordinated with the portions within the Pentateuch. We take the whole Scripture as a whole. And then Jesus even goes ahead and shows them a passage in Exodus and says, see, even from the Pentateuch I can prove the resurrection. <laughs> Which is kind of a neat way that he does that. But fixation upon Pentateuch supremacy fails to embrace a whole council approach to God's special revelation. We need to have a whole council approach to the Bible. We can't just limit our uh, understanding of doctrine to one particular part of the Bible. People today do the same thing. They do it with maybe the New Testament, or they do it with the Pauline epistles. There are whole church traditions out there that their Bible basically is, is Romans to, to Titus, right? Or, or Philemon. It, 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 Paul was the one who wrote to the church. And they reject First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John. They reject Jude. They reject, uh, you know, uh, the Gospels are okay because it tells Jesus stories. But as far as doctrine for the church is concerned, it's Pauline, and that's all. See, and it's tragic because that's not how scriptures are designed to be learned. So fixation upon Pentateuch supremacy fails to embrace a whole council approach to God's special revelation. It shouldn't say. There's a typo there on the screen. I'll fix that for next week. And of course, we like to use Acts 20, 20 and 27, Isaiah 28, 10 and 13, 2 Timothy 3, 16. This, uh, this forms the, the, uh, the core of our philosophy to Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. For doctrine, for reproof, for teaching, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished in all good works. You understand what that means? You're not complete if you're not embracing all Scripture. It's all Scripture that equips us, thoroughly furnishing us in all good works. So if you fixate on one particular section of Scripture, as they did with the Pentateuch, or as some people today do with the, with the Pauline epistles, if we just lock in on one, and which ultimately leads to an imbalance, at least to an overemphasis and a denial of something else. We're not free to pick and choose. We're not God's co-editors, right? We're not free to 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 exalt one and, and diminish another. Because what? How, who are we to diminish what God has magnified in accordance with His own name? 
So we've got to understand that in terms of all Scripture. Acts 20, verses 20 and 27, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring unto you anything that was profitable. And what's profitable? All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Right. So connect the two together there and you understand what's profitable. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring unto you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. And he gets more explicit in verse 27 when he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole counsel. The whole purpose. Anything that's profitable, which is all Scripture. God-breathed and profitable. And then uh, the, the verse we like to use in Isaiah 28, verses 10 and 13. This is the line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little. This is the way in which Scripture needs to be learned. And the critics in Isaiah's day mocked him for it. They mocked him. They, they, they laughed at him because they thought that, that, uh, that uh, line by line, precept by precept was, was baby talk. See, you know, it kind of sounds like it in Hebrew. But it's, uh, and Jesus says, quite right it is line by line, precept on precept. That's how you need to learn. So uh, they fail to understand the Scriptures. Likewise, they fail to understand the power of God. Failure to understand the power of God. And I find this interesting too. Abraham had no scriptures, but he understood the power of God. You ever think about that? <laughs> Abraham had no scriptures. I can give you several scriptures for this, but I'll give you Romans 4.17. I like Romans 4.17. Abraham had no scriptures, but he understood the power of God. God made a promise. God's going to have to fulfill that promise, isn't he? <laughs> you know? I wouldn't have made that promise, but then again, I'm not God. I don't have the power to back up, uh, you know. I'm not going to go tell a 90-year-old man he's going to have a baby. Because I'm not, I don't have the power to, to or a 100-year-old man to have a baby. But God tells him he's going to have a baby. And this is the nature of faith and Abraham's faith and his understanding of the power of God. Romans 4.16 says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, it says, In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. That's God's power right there who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And so he had no scriptures. He had no promise. All he had was what God told him, and he believed. And he understood the power of God. God's the creator. God's the one that calls life into existence. So in hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So uh, God said, so shall your descendants be. Abraham said, all right. God's got the power to give me descendants. He's got the power to make Adam out of the dust. <laughs> Right? He can, he can give me descendants. And uh, he understood the power of God. He even understood, there's a verse we'll see shortly in Hebrews, that when he was sacrificing Isaac, well, okay, God told me to kill him. Abraham said, well, maybe he'll bring him back from the dead. God's got the power, he'll do what he wants to do. Sadducees, on the other hand, understood neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They did not have the fear of the Lord. They did not have the the um, really even the intimacy with the Lord to understand how powerful He really is. And this is, uh, I think, the difference in terms of even with the danger we have at Austin Bible Church or any doctrinal church today is that we can spend so much time learning about God and we can miss the goal of actually knowing Him. Say, we know about Him and we can exegete a verse and I can spell out an essence box. Okay? But do I know Him? Do I have a personal relationship with Him that is stronger, deeper, more intimate than it was yesterday and the day before and the year before that? Okay, I'm supposed to know Him in the fellowship of His sufferings and the power of His resurrection. So, let's not imitate these Sadducees and know so much about God that we fail to actually know God. And uh, this is where they were, not understanding neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Okay, thirdly, the resurrection will be like the present existence for the angels. This I used made up my term angelity. Well, remember that? If there's humanity, there needs to be angelity. The resurrection existence for humanity will be like 
the present existence for angelity. We will be like the angels. We're not like the angels yet. We will be like the angels when we get there. But we will also be like the Lord when we get there. So there are other differences. Um, we're not going to turn into angels. Although there have been um, wrong understandings going even back to church fathers uh, in early church history. There were misunderstandings of this. Even before the New Testament, there were misunderstandings on this. Um, confusion in apocryphal literature related to angels and what happens at death, things of that nature. No, it doesn't say we're going to be angels. You know, that, that's actually a demotion. <laughs> so we understand it. Jesus as a man was made for a little while lower than the angels, right? But he didn't start at angel level. He started above the angels. Okay, so in the hierarchy of things, God is the highest and then the angels and then man. Okay? And Satan in the angelic realm sinned when he thought to exalt himself to make himself equal with God. God, on the other hand, came down not just to the level Satan was at, but he came even lower than the angels to identify with you and I and our weakness. And, our, and that's the nature of the humility of how God created the, the human race. All part of his design. All right? And so in the resurrection, we're going to be made like the angels only so far as our non-marital condition and our, our immortal condition is going to be concerned. But we're not going to be like the angels in the sense that we're going to be like Christ. When he appears, we will see him as he is, for we shall be like him. Okay, And we're being molded into, into that image of Christ. So uh, in the resurrection, we'll actually be above the angels. Angels are going to be our servants in the, in the eternal state as far as that goes. All right. Angels were also um, denied by the Sadducees. It was kind of interesting. Jesus used as an illustration from another doctrinal blindness in order to answer the doctrinal blindness under consideration. They denied the resurrection. They also denied angels. And so when he's trying to relate to them the, the truth of the resurrection, what does he do? He says, they're going to be in the resurrection more like the angels. <laughs> so he takes another one of their blind spots, another realm of their, of their ignorance. And he uses it to answer the doctrinal blindness under consideration. And in some ways, when I think, well, that's not, uh, that's not too smart... Um, you know, if they, if they don't accept angels, why are you using that as a part of your testimony for, for this other thing they don't understand? Okay? Some people might say it's not an effective method, but it's the method he used. I think it's interesting. I think if, uh, and, and, you know, in, in future discussions, I may consider using such an approach. Um, it may simply illustrate, you know what? You, you got some blind areas here. You got some blind spots. You got some deficiencies in your understanding of Scripture, and, and more than one. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, maybe a person has a hard time thinking that they that they're wrong about something. You know, maybe if they're so prideful they can't imagine they're wrong about anything. And so you show them two things they're wrong about, or three things they're wrong about, or four things they're wrong about. You show them enough, and then maybe they'll catch on to the fact. Hey, you know what? <laughs> Wow, yeah, I'm wrong about a lot of things. Maybe it breaks down the resistance to admitting that one thing that they're not going to admit being wrong about. As soon as you show them, hey, there's two things you're wrong about, there's three things you're wrong about. And then all of a sudden, it's pretty obvious, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty fallible, aren't I? Yeah, maybe, maybe I need to take another look at this. Okay. Well, he uses this. Angels were also denied by the Sadducees. This is uh, sub-point A. So Jesus used an illustration from another doctrinal blindness to answer the doctrinal blindness under consideration. I find that to be an interesting approach. All right, point B. I'm almost out of time. Okay, well, we'll come back to this next week. We will have class next week. I'm not going to cancel because of the prophecy conference. That's all evening stuff. So, uh, archaeology in the evening. We'll have we'll have a regular morning schedule for ladies' prayer and, uh, and uh, life of Christ. Humans don't become angels. This and other passages have sometimes been used to promote that belief. It's not true. Humans don't become angels. This and other passages have sometimes been used to promote that belief. The idea that, uh, yeah, we're going to... No. We're going to have wings. We're going to sit on clouds. We'll have halos and harps. Okay, And we may have harps, because there are harps in heaven, but um, I, I don't find any Bible uh, validation for the halo idea. 
and uh, and uh, <laughs> and we're certainly not going to be angels. As I said, that's a demotion. Angels are servants. All right, they have been sent forth to render service to those who will inherit salvation. Uh, Matthew and Mark both use a, a phrase here: "hos angeloi," as like or as angels, like or as angels, and that denies identity. That denies identity. The simile denies identity. Okay. When I tell Zoe that she throws like a girl, she says, Dad, I am a girl. Okay? <laughs> right? You can't... Um, if, if, you're, if, you, if you're like something, then you're not that something. Okay? And so when I tell her she throws like a girl, I'm, I'm doing that as, a, as an irony, as a, as a uh, point of sarcasm, okay? And teasing, and she understands that. Um, so, if we are going to be like angels... That is a nonsensical statement if we're going to be angels. Okay? Uh, you, you can't say you're going to be like. You know, it's not like. The day I got married, I, I was like a husband. No. The day I got married, I became a husband. Alright? So, uh, the, the, the expression like uh, refutes the idea of identity. You cannot be an angel if you are like an angel. Uh, and Luke even coins a term, not found outside of, of uh, biblical literature. In fact, not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, he, he takes the adjective isos, isos, and attaches it in front of angelos. And so, isangeloi, we're going to be angelish, angel-like. Okay? It's almost like uh, in chemistry you have isotopes, right? And an isotope, what's an isotope? It's a related form of, of, a, of a substance. It's, it's close. It's, it's similar to or it's, it's compatible with. It has, a, you know, it may be, uh, it has a, a similarity to or resemblance to another, another isotope, but it's not the same thing. Okay? And that's what our resurrection is going to be like. It's going to have similarities to the angel's present existence in the sense that we're not going to die anymore. Angels can't die. It's, uh, we're not going to have, we're not going to procreate. Angels don't procreate, okay? So, in that way, we are angelish. But only in that way. And that's as far as the Lord takes it here in this circumstance. And that's the final thing we'll deal with today. Point C. The resurrected state for humanity will be an eternal, angels are presently eternal, non-marital, non-procreative estate. Non-procreative estate. That's what we'll call. That's what our reality will be like in the resurrection. And that's as far as we want to take it. All right, because that's as far as the Lord takes it. And other passages make it very clear that we that uh, the angels will carry us into the presence of the Lord. But when we have glimpses of heaven, we have glimpses of angels alongside glorified humanity, and they're not the same. Okay, When you have the glimpses in Hebrews, or you have the glimpses in Revelation, or you have even the transfiguration shows glorified humanity that is something different than angelic uh, existence. So the resurrected state for humanity will be an eternal, non-marital, non-procreative estate. And that becomes important, not just for today, but in additional studies when we distinguish between the millennium and the fullness of time. What's the, how do the thousand generations get birthed in the, uh, in the uh, new heavens and new earth? If, if we're all resurrected, non-marital, non-procreative, then how do these thousand generations come about? So you've got you to combine that. You've got to put that together with the understanding of the, the millennial saints that cross into the fullness of time. They don't get resurrected. They don't get translated into resurrection bodies of glory. They get cleansed into sinless bodies, but uh, procreative bodies nonetheless. And that's what we uh, deal with in our, through the bio, in our uh, plan of God reader. So different, uh, different studies there. Alright, there's a point four with some subpoints and a point five. More things that we've got to deal with, but we'll have to deal with them one week from today because we are out of time. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this glimpse of heaven, Father. Uh, we will, we will uh, be like the angels, and I'm looking forward to that, Father. I, I'm not going to miss this body. The resurrection body will be great, and, and uh, but even better, Father, will be our, our being the bride of Christ and being with our Savior for all eternity. Thank you for designing the plan of God in the way that you did. 
We rejoice in the church age. And, and Father, I just pray as we continue to study and, uh, and see these different realms of Scripture that you would open our minds to understand that, that your plan is so broad and so uh, awesome. Father, far more than just simply the, uh, the, the limited focus of, of our salvation. Father, so, much things, so many things that accompany our salvation, greater works that, that, we, uh, that we can pursue in, in terms of, of uh, the outworking of your plan. So, Father, uh, again, we've got a glimpse. We thank you for it. We ask that you would take it and use it in our lives. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.